Well, good morning, everyone, to our Wednesday morning live Bible study. So good to be here with all of you. Pastor Peter here. Thanks for joining us as we continue our walk through the book of Acts. Uh, really, it's been a blessing for me to, to walk through this with you all. I hope the, the same is, is true for all of you. We uh, haven't been able to c- cover every last verse and, and chapter, but we are making our way through. And today we are in chapter 12. We're going to be taking a look at two different stories um, with, with slightly different messages, and, and yet there's something that they share too, which is, which is why I wanted to read them together. I, I think they were meant to be read uh, together because there is a, a continuity of message in between these two stories. And so first we're going to be reading this story about King Herod and his swift demise. And then we're going to read the story of, of the early church and how the Spirit worked through them, and in particular, in sending out two men, Paul and Barnabas, to share the gospel across the world. Um, we're going to read about one of their first interactions as missionaries with the, with the people that they meet. Uh, now, one of the, the constant themes throughout these two stories, like I said, I think they're meant to be read together, is the power of God. I think throughout both of them, we are going to see that God is solidly in control, right? He is the one calling the shots. He is the one with all of the power. He holds all of the cards. It made me think about some of the the powerful forces at work in our worlds today. Uh, Maybe you can think about what what some of those forces are for for good and for evil, right? There are are lots of powerful forces out there today. We we might think of governments, uh, maybe even particular politicians, uh, there are some powerful institutions. I think of something like Hollywood, right? Uh, there's a lot of power to get things done in our world today. And then there are those uh, powerful forces who, who are at work against God. And, and we could think of what some of those forces might be. Again, they might be people, they might be institutions, but, but they're at work as well in our, our world. And again, what our message for today is from the book of Acts is that however powerful these forces might seem, God is the most powerful force at work in our world today. Nothing is beyond his control. When God wants something to get done, it gets done. He is. He is uh, more powerful than anything or anyone else. Uh, With that, I'd like to just kind of jump in then, I guess. Keeping that in mind, God's power uh, him working through and for and in all. I'd like to jump in. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 19. And first we're going to read the story of Herod. We'll pause and talk a little bit about that as we go. And then we'll jump into the story of, of the calling and the sending and then the work of Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. So let's do this. Let's, let's jump in. So Acts chapter 12, verse 19. Let me share this with you. It says, after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, and, and there he's talking about the apostle Peter from the previous story. You can go back and read that. Uh, after Herod had made a thorough search for Peter and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Right here we see a man who's got a lot of power. He, he merely gives the order and people die. That's, that's a powerful force at, the work, at work in the world in, in that day. Uh, but not the most powerful force, right? There's someone else, some, some God greater, and we're going to get there. It says, Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea, and he stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they now joined together and sought an audience with him. Here are these two enemies of, of King Herod who are joining forces 
kind of bowing down in front of his power. They recognize that here it is a force that cannot be beaten. So if they can't beat him, they might as well join him. It says, after securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. Uh, here's where things get interesting, right? Uh, Herod obviously has an exalted sense of self and, and a sense of his, his power. But now here are the people also kind of bowing down to his power. They refer to him not just as a man, but as a, a god. And then in verse 23, it says, Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So what was Herod's sin here, right? What was it that, that uh, led to his downfall, and why was that so, so dangerous? Well, it, it was not recognizing God's power. Right? He thought that he had all the power, and he loved to be noticed and recognized for it. When other people called him a god, he, he, he didn't dodge that, right? He didn't deny it. He accepted that, right? And, and thereby, he, he was trying to lower God's position in his, his life. But, but God is number one, and he will be treated as, as number one. And, and so I think we, we can take that as a lesson for today, can't we? That there is no power, no institution, no politician, no government that is in the place of God, right? God is by far the number one power and authority for us. And to him and him alone do we bow down. Now, we recognize, as God calls us to do, to, to show honor and respect to our governments and authorities and institutions that are over us, but we never give them the, the faith that only God deserves. And Herod is selfish, he's self-centered, and in response, uh, God strikes him him dead, right? He's eaten by worms and he dies. Uh, here's where I, I love the last line of what we just read. It says, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish, right? Because God cannot be stopped. That's how powerful he is. Nothing will get in the way of his plan, not Herod and not anyone else. I mean, that, that whole ending of the story just highlights God's power. Right? Here's this one who had all the earthly power in the world and for God, that's nothing. Right? With just a word, he's, he's gone, and God's word continues to go out and flourish. And so there's a, a couple characteristics that we begin to see of God, even in, in the short story that we've read so far, and that is both his justice and his mercy. Right? Ju God's justice is clear. God punishes evil. And the, and the, the sentence that Herod get, gets, it might seem harsh, right? It, it kind of does, right? He dies for his sin. But isn't justice what we all want, right? When we see terrible things happening, when we see evil in our midst, don't we want justice? Don't we want to see that punished and, and to see the innocent uplifted? And, and that's what's playing out for us today. I think a good example for us in our modern world is, is what many of us just kind of lived through and witnessed with the, the George Floyd trial a terrible act of injustice and and there were calls for justice right people wanted uh, those officers punished and we all long for that anytime there's injustice in our world today and and we have a god of justice right he will not stand for evil or sin uh, that is punished it receives its due 
God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy, <laughs> right? He wants his word to, to continue to spread and flourish, his word of mercy, his word of love, his word of forgiveness. Despite the fact that none of us deserve it, he wants it to continue to go out. He wants more and more people to hear about what he's done for them and the grace and the mercy that he has for them. And so we see these dual characteristics of God, his justice and his mercy. They're not at odds with each other, right? They go hand in hand. God is both just and merciful. All right, uh, that particular little story ends by saying, when Barnabas and Saul finished their journey, uh, finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. At this point in the story of Acts, we see a switch from Jerusalem to Antioch. Uh, for a time, Jerusalem was the, the center of the early Christian church. It's where everything was happening. It's where the apostles were living and gathering and, and most of the disciples lived. But over time, we see that change as the gospel goes out and spreads, as the church is persecuted in, in Jerusalem. Uh, pretty soon, there's a new center to the, the faith and, and that becomes Antioch, which we'll, we'll read about in just a, a minute here. Uh, but the point being, again, God is powerful. He's just, he's merciful and the word is growing. Nothing can stop it. Not Herod, not anyone else. God is in control. We're going to see that continue, that being continued through the next story. So let's jump in. Chapter 13, let me read a little. Verses 1 through 12 is where we'll end, but I'll, I'll pause along the way with some commentary too. It says, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers. Um, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. <clears throat> a couple things we learned just from that opening verse. Uh, first, we know that the church is growing. Right? We know that because there are these th defined roles, prophets and teachers. Um, there seems to be a development within the church as, as it grows and there's more people, right? Uh, you need order. You need things to be organized. So now uh, the, the church is kind of figuring that out. There's prophets and, and there's teachers. So we see the growth of, of the church. We, we see one of God's values, which is orderliness. We see that all the way starting from the Garden of Eden, how orderly God creates the world. But then I think something even more interesting to me, and, and, and that is uh, the multi-ethnic nature to the church. So you have Barnabas. And then you have Simeon called Niger. Uh, uh, Niger is the Latin word for black. So many people think that Simeon was, was probably from Africa, that, that blackness referred to the color of his skin. Uh, Lucius of Cyrene was also from Africa. So we know the gospel has spread, right? It's kind of jumped the water, so to speak, um, across continents to, to Africa. Uh, we also have uh, Manaean, who we, we are told had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So we have all different peoples. We have Jews in the church, ethnic Jews. We have Africans who, who were not uh, most likely ethnic Jews. And we even have people working for the enemy in a sense, right? People from the, uh, people who had been brought up with, with Herod, the Tetrarch, Manaean. So what a diverse group, right? And isn't that beautiful? That's what the church is meant to be look like, a diverse group of people from all nations, all languages, a multi-ethnic people of God. Uh, we, we see here happening what God had always wanted, right? He had always wanted this multi-ethnic family. It's, it's the promise that had been made to, to Abraham, that through Abraham and the family given to him, that all nations would be blessed. It's something that we see in Psalm 67, uh, where we hear, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you, right? God had always wanted 
not just for certain people with certain blood speaking a certain language to come to be a part of his family, but we know that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world. And that had been God's heart from the very beginning. And we see it really pouring out now, flowing out, and, and becoming a reality in the lives of, of the early church. This is a multi-ethnic family from multiple continents now, probably speaking multiple languages, from all um, stratospheres of society, right? You even have uh, people who had grown up with earthly kings, all a part of that family. And yet for all of their differences, what they had in common was Jesus, right? And they were united in him. All of their differences, in a sense, in, in one sense, uh, they weren't insignificant because they, they each added something, right, and brought something to the table, but the, the, the differences weren't meant to, to divide them right? because they had Christ at their heart. What a beautiful picture uh, of the church. And, and it's a picture that continues to be the case today, right? The Christians continue to, to, to gather in places across the world. And uh, it's a wonderful thing. It's what God wants. Verse 2, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. They were worshiping the Lord and fasting. That's interesting, right? And it's important, right? It shows the, the total devotion of these early Christians to the Lord, right? Uh, worshiping is an act of devotion and commitment. It's not something to do half-heartedly. And, and fasting is too. If you've ever fasted, uh, you know that that's a, a, a sign of commitment, right? You, you can't really fast half-heartedly. If you fast half-heartedly, you're not really fasting. Right? If you're taking snacks along with the way, that's not a fast. If, if you're fasting, it, it, uh, that to me, that shows a commitment. If you've done that, you know it's not easy. It can be painful. And yet the, the Lord's people, these two acts, worship and fasting, it's what defines them in many ways, right? These two acts. That's not to say that they didn't do other things as a church. They may have had potlucks. They might have had game nights. Uh, they might have thrown block parties like uh, our church likes to do. But those weren't the marks of the church, right? That's not what made them the church, right? The, the two defining activities here, and, and there's going to be one more added later, and that's prayer. But prayer, worshiping, and fasting, that's what made them who they were. And it showed their commitment and their devotion to the Lord. And I think in that way they set a beautiful example for us. I, I think the truth is sometimes we, we can kind of approach our faith half-heartedly. Um, we give God time when it's convenient. We worship when it's convenient. We give money when we have a little bit extra. We pray, but only when we need something, right? We segment our lives. We have our God time on Sunday mornings or this time, Wednesday Bible study, but the rest of the time, you know, he's, he's kind of absent from our lives. We serve, but maybe only when we're asked. We're not looking for ways to serve. We spend a lot of time scrolling on our phones or browsing the internet, but very little time uh, in God's word listening to him speak, right? We, we're pulled in all these directions, and, and sometimes we can approach our faith half-heartedly, but, but the Christians here give us an example. Um, this is not to say that they were perfect, because I'm sure that they weren't, right? So we shouldn't romanticize it in that way, but I think they, they do give us an example here. And we have many other examples throughout history of this devotion and commitment to the Lord. Worshiping, prayer, fasting, right? That's what defined them. And while they are worshiping and, and fasting, the Holy Spirit comes to them. Uh, this is the first time that the Holy Spirit is going to fill God's people. And we're going to hear about this three times, actually. <laughs> There's a lot, of, a lot of the Holy Spirit going on, a lot of filling of the Holy Spirit happening. And 
Again, this is God at work. The Holy Spirit is, is God. So here we, again, see God is at work in the world, and he's powerful, and he's accomplishing his will. So the people are, are worshiping, and they're fasting, and the Holy Spirit comes to them. And, and, and in this case, uh, notice what the Holy Spirit's doing. It's guiding them. That's one of the works of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guides us into the ways that it wants us to go. And so the Holy Spirit fills the church, guiding them, saying, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So it's here's, I, I want these two guys to go here, right? It's uh, pointing them in the right direction. And the Spirit continues to do that today. Not always in, in, in an audible voice, right? But sometimes the, the Spirit opens up doors, right? It creates opportunities, and, and we need to be listening. And uh, it's a lot easier to listen when you're worshiping and praying and fasting. <laughs> and so, again, we, we need to be just as committed and devoted to God. And so the Holy Spirit fills the church, the, the Christians there, uh, sets apart Barnabas and Saul. And this, listen what happens next. It says, so after that happens, it says, after they had prayed and fasted, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So before the Holy Spirit guides them, they're worshiping and fasting. And then after the Holy Spirit fills them and guides them, they're fasting and praying again. I mean, this is, this is what they do. Right? In a sense, this is what it means to be a part of the church. People committed, devoted to God, to listening to him, to humbling themselves, to giving him honor, to receiving his gifts, to letting their lives be shaped and molded by whatever he wants to do. Uh, this is what it looks like to be the people of, of God. It's a beautiful picture. Um, a beautiful picture of what it means to be a, a part of the church. All right, verse 4, let's pick up there. It says, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Here's the Holy Spirit again. And in this case, it's the Holy Spirit sending Paul and Barnabas, right? It says, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. So we've seen the Holy Spirit guiding uh, God's people. We've uh, filling the church. We've seen now the Holy Spirit sending Paul and Barnabas. And the Spirit continues to send us to people and places today. So the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. <clears throat> that, that's important where they start, right? The Jewish synagogues. Because there's a major theme in the book of Acts that the word is spreading to new people, new places, right? It's going out to the Gentiles, would have been mind-blowing to the Jews, but it was what God always wanted. But at the same time, as, as the word of God and its promises and God's gifts are reaching new people, God hasn't forgotten about the old people, the covenant people, right? The Jewish people. And so uh, Paul and Barnabas, they, they first go to the Jewish synagogues because God wants all people to know of his love, but he's also faithful to his children, to his people, to the ones that he had made the promise to, the, the children of Abraham so long ago. God hasn't given up on them. He's going to keep their promise, right? He doesn't walk away from those he loves. And so the word continues to go both to Jew and to Gentile. Verse 6 says, they, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. All right, two interesting things here. Um, this guy's name, this Jewish sorcerer and false prophet, his name is Bar-Jesus. So Jesus you obviously recognize. The word Bar there actually means son of. So this guy's name was son of Jesus. Uh, we see that this guy is kind of a, uh, 
uh, an exact opposite of Jesus, <laughs> right? This son of Jesus is about as different from Jesus as you can as you can get. Jesus is is one who speaks the truth and and points the way to the Father. And in this bar Jesus, um, he's a liar and a deceiver, and he's pointing people away from God. This bar Jesus is about as as bad of a guy as you can be, <laughs> right? Uh, I say that for a couple of reasons. First, he's a Jew, so he should have known God. He should have known of God's promises. He should have known better. But he's also a magician. And these things shouldn't really go together, right? Jews and magicians, magic and sorcery. So he's a, a Jew who had all the promises, who knew better, and yet who is relying on magic and evil and sorcery in, in order to, uh, to do his work. Uh, and he's a false prophet. So this guy's like the worst. He's as bad as you can get, right? Not only is he doing bad things, but he also knows better and has all the promises of God and yet has rejected them and is trying to lead people away from the one that has revealed himself to him. And this Jewish sorcerer, uh, this bad guy, he was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus, kind of the, uh, the leader in that area. It says the proconsul, an intelligent man, uh, so we should say that this guy's probably a Gentile, Sergius Paulus. He's a Gentile um, who doesn't know better, right? Because he doesn't have God's promises. He hasn't received uh, word of, of the Messiah and the Savior. And yet this Gentile is longing to see God. Do you see, see the irony in that? The Jew who should know better is practicing evil and sorcery, engaging in all sorts of sin, leading people away from God. And here's this Gentile who, who doesn't know better and yet is longing to know God and is searching after him. And, and sends for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. Verse 8, it says, But Elamas the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was called Paul, was filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elamas and said, Okay, before we get to the punchline, let me just pause here again. So here we hear about the, the two names that this man Saul has. He's Saul, but he's also called Paul. Saul was, was the more Jewish version of his name. Paul was the Greek version. And Saul, Paul lived in two worlds, right? He went to the Jews and to the Greeks. And so when he was amongst the Jews, he was probably known as Saul. When he was amongst the Gentiles or the Greeks, he was known as Paul. Uh, that would be like me. My name's Peter here in America and in, in the United States. But if I were to go to Mexico, people might call me Pedro because that's uh, my name translated into Spanish. It's not that my name has changed, right? It's just depending on what audience I'm in front of, I might be called different things. And, and that's the case with Saul. He's living in two worlds, and so he's called two different things. But uh, here again, here's the third time, if you've been counting, Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit. So first it was the church filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was guiding them to make the right decision. And then it was the Holy Spirit filling uh, Paul and Barnabas, sending them across the world to share the gospel to all new places. And now it's the Holy Spirit filling Saul, speaking through him, right? Speaking through and giving him the words to say, giving him boldness to say those words. And, and here's what he says. He says, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. He's saying this to the sorcerer, to Bar-Jesus Elmas. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. 
And immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Okay, here again is where we see God is in charge. He is powerful. He gets things done. Because here's this another powerful person, like Herod earlier, right? This man is spiritually powerful. He's a sorcerer. He's a magician. Probably had attracted attention. People listened to him and went to him for advice and to get things done. But here's Bar-Jesus, the spiritually but evilly powerful man who is completely rendered powerless by God. Right? And one of the words that keys us into that is immediately. Immediately mist and darkness came over him. Just like that, God renders him blind, unable to see. The one who claimed to see so much by his sorcery and magic now is blind. Right? God is powerful. God is in control. Not Herod, uh, a political force of nature. Not bar Jesus, a spiritual force of nature. No, God is the one who's calling the shots. And he is the one to be worshipped. He is the one to be listened to. And so uh, in, in response to bar Jesus' sin, he's made blind. Now this should sound familiar with us because we just talked about something similar last week with Saul, right? Saul was also made blind. And we said, just like Saul was made blind, uh, there were others in the Bible who were made blind. Like, like Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And, and each of these three people have something in common, right? They're, they're living lives of faithlessness. They're not trusting in God. In a sense, when God makes someone blind, he's letting them live in the world they, they have chosen to live in, a world of darkness. Right? Uh, Saul was obviously wandering in darkness before Jesus came to him. And God says, okay, I'm going I'm to let you sit there for a while and, and deal with the consequences, see what it's like. But, you know, here, just like in those other two examples, we see that uh, Saul says, bar Jesus, says to Bar-Jesus, you are going to be blind for a time, not forever, right? And, and I think what we get from that is that God makes these people blind. He gives them what they want. He lets them live in the darkness that they have chosen for themselves, but for a purpose, right? Not merely to punish them, but to bring them to repentance, he blinds them, but he also wants them then to see. He wants them to see the, the depth of their darkness and the pain of their darkness and the, the futility of their darkness so that they would turn from that, so they would repent and come to the light, come to Jesus. So even this blinding, I think, is an act of, of grace. It is an act of justice and punishment in some sense, but, but that is what, what's leading God to that. What's, what's the driving force behind him is his love for people, right? And his longing that all would come to see the light of Christ. And, and I think we see that even in Bar-Jesus, even in this really bad guy, even in the worst of people, someone who should know better and yet is blatantly practicing evil, God longs for him to repent and turn about. Now let's go on. It says in verse 12, when the proconsul saw what had happened, when he saw that Bar-Jesus was made blind, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So we don't know if Bar-Jesus ever comes to faith, but we do know that that blindness caused to him did have some impact, right? The proconsul sees that Bar-Jesus is struck blind and he believes. So God is working good and love out of this situation, which is what he wanted to happen. And, uh, and we see that happen. This man comes to faith. This Gentile is now a believer. And so here's the calling of Barnabas and, and Saul coming to fruition. They're sent to Jew and Gentile, and here we see uh, uh, and here we see the word of God coming to Jew and Gentile, to Bar-Jesus and to the proconsul. And, and at least in the case of, of the proconsul, uh, Sergius Paulus, we see that, that faith has been created. 
and uh, this man believes in Jesus. Uh, all right, so I think another wonderful story. Through it all, we see that God is powerful and he's committed, right? Three times he's pouring out his spirit to the people, to Barnabas and Saul, and then to Saul himself, right? And, and, and what does that tell us? It tells us just how invested he is. Because these people aren't half filled with the spirit. That's not what it says. They're filled with it. They're full of the spirit, right? And, and God is determined that his plan comes to fruition and that his promises are kept and that his people do his will. And so over and over and over again, he pours out his spirit to his people because he, he's, uh, he's committed with a full heart. And a God who has done that for us, a father who has sent his son to us, uh, uh, Jesus who laid down his life for us, the spirit that fills it, it shows us that God is all in and that he's all powerful. And an all powerful God who is totally invested, right, in his people, what, what are we to do in response to that but to be committed and devoted ourselves, right? And so we see that in the early church who are worshiping and praying and fasting, because they know all that God has done for them. And it's the least that they can do to respond with that same kind of commitment. And they show that commitment, a full-hearted commitment, not to earn God's love or a place in his family, right? That's already theirs. But, but it's just that when someone is so devoted and committed to you, you are motivated to, to respond likewise. And we see that happening. And I think that's a lesson for us to learn. I, I think we can also learn that even when things look really bad and even when the powerful people, whether it's an institution or a politician or a, a governmental system, even when it seems like it's getting the last, last, last laugh or having the last word, we know that God gets the last word. He has the last laugh. And his last word will be a word of justice and mercy, kindness and love towards sinners like you and me. And so there are times when everything's going to look like it's falling apart. There'll be times, like with Saul and Barnabas, that we're sent out into the world and we're going to meet opposition, like Bar-Jesus, like sorcerers, all sorts of evil. And it'll be different for us in our time and in each of our situations. And, and, and we'll feel like maybe we're doing something wrong, right? And we're going to wonder if we're saying the right words. But that's when we rely on the Spirit of Jesus working in us and through us and for us. And that's when we remember, it's not up to me. It's up to God. And he is powerful, and he will get what he wants to be done. The final lesson I think we learn is that there is this conflict in our world between good and evil, between the ways of God and the ways of Satan, but we know who wins. And in this world, it often looks like Satan is winning. It looks like he's gotten the upper hand, but we as Christians know that's not true. Our God is a God of victory and life. He is a God who has conquered our enemies. That's all ours today. We don't have to wait for it. It's, it's ours right now. And, and so because we know how the story ends, our lives look different. We live lives of confidence and boldness, like, like we see in Saul, just speaking so boldly against Bar-Jesus. And, and, and we can do the same uh, because we know that mercy and kindness and love wins. Well, dear friends, uh, thank you for joining us today. I uh, hope that you've been blessed by these times together in, in God's word and uh, that you've been able to follow along with our, our lessons here. So, um, Hope to see you next week. Uh, we'll be back next week, um, Wednesday, 11.30 a.m. Again, ready to jump into God's Word. Next week, we're going to look at the story of Pentecost from Acts chapter 2. So hope to see you back for that. God bless everyone.